It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. What do the words diversity, equity, and inclusion really mean in practice? Well, it depends. Business leader and author Dr. Rohini Anand has come up with five principles of DEI work that can help people adapt these intentions to their own organizations and cultures and make changes that stick. The foundational mistake very often is, oh, this thing works over here, so it's going to work in this organization. It doesn't work that way. It has to be applied with sensitivity. In today's talk, based on her book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Dr. Anand explains what each principle means, why it's important, and how she developed this framework. She also gets personal and shares how immigrating to the U.S. completely changed her perspective and the direction of her life's work. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Ascend. Dr. Anand is interviewed by Maisha Renee Forbes, the Vice President of People and Culture at the Aspen Institute. Here's Dr. Anand. I grew up in Mumbai, and growing up in Mumbai, India, everyone pretty much looked like me with the same skin tones. I belong to the majority religion. And surrounded by others like me, I actually had the privilege of not having to think about my identity. It was when I moved to the US, Maisha, as a young, single Indian woman, that was my inflection point in both my literal and my metaphorical journey. And my identity shifted from being a person who saw herself as the center of the world to being a minority, to being an immigrant, to being a foreigner. And I was honestly completely unprepared for that. So it was only when I was identified as a minority did I realize some of the privileges that came with being part of a majority. You know, I was part of a majority growing up in India and I hadn't recognized my privilege in that way. And I was honestly unable to, till I was perceived as a minority and I experienced things differently. So, you know, this realization of what it means to be a minority, part of a non-dominant group, um, this you know, sort of realization that identity is situational, that it's fluid, still informs my work. And this vocation is very personal to me. And uh, you know, I think that understanding what it, what it means to be perceived as a minority, an outsider, is very much at the heart of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So my work is about leveling the playing field so everyone can succeed. And, you know, I would say that my vocation and my avocation are perfectly aligned. So, you know, that's, that's my story. It's, you know, part of who I am and why I do this work. Thank you very much, Rohini. I have to say, I, that's one thing that I really am enjoying and enjoyed about the book is the way you infuse so much of your personal story and your personal journey. And the part about being when you were in India and everyone, you, you were of the majority. And it makes me think a little bit about how we talk about belonging now. So mm-hmm. a lot of people, they add the B after the DEI, right? And belonging is not something you think about per se when everyone is, it looks like you or is from the same background or the same, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and how do we as practitioners think about ha- helping people to feel like they belong when mm-hmm. they are of the, in, the experience in some kind of otherness or they are, uh, have an other um, identity that is not the majority. Um, but I appreciate the way you draw on that personal story of yours um, in that way. Uh, so thank you for that. 
I, I want to talk a little bit also about organizations and some of the things that organizations struggle with. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Organizations struggle, we struggle with ensuring that our culture, our organizational culture is diverse, it's inclusive, it's equitable in a sustained way. And so this is really, I think, the heart of uh, your book and also the heart of your life's work um, in this space. And just so, you know, we really get out the meat early on in our conversation, you know, tell us what does it take? What does it take for organizations to ensure that their organization organizational culture is diverse, inclusive, and equitable in a sustainable way? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I'll talk about it in a minute, but I did want to share with you, Maisha, one sort of additional piece around, you know, my story. So when I joined Sodexo, um, you know, this was sort of early in my career. um, And I joined at a time when the company had some litigation, and I didn't realize the seriousness of that litigation till it was actually certified as a class action lawsuit. It was a lawsuit filed by African-Americans. It was a promotion discrimination lawsuit. And sort of extending this piece around my identity, here I was, you know, I was hired um, to be the chief diversity officer. My role was to change that, you know, the, the lawsuit predated me, et cetera. But I was extremely conscious of my Asian American identity. Here I was, you know, with, African-American leaders, and I really started questioning the wisdom of the organization and hiring somebody who was not of their like identity in order to address some of the issues, because I had had my share of discrimination, you know, being told, go back to where you belong, you know, you speak English well, all of those things, but I had not had the experiences of my Black colleagues in the potent context of enslavement, historical enslavement in the United States. So it was my job to sort of listen to their lived experiences, to build trust with them, while at the same time, building trust with management and sort of building my relationship with them, but doing it in a way such that my black colleagues trusted me enough to be my sort of sounding board to be my guides and to really help me to to navigate some of the things that they were experiencing. So I just wanted to extend that, you know, identity in my story. I should have said it earlier before you asked me the next question. But I think this is so much a part of that identity and how it's situational and how it's fluid and how it's contextual. And, you know, sometimes you are a majority, sometimes you're a minority, but you really have to do that introspection and, and recognize the privileges that come with being, you know, part of, of certain groups, uh, whether it's based on race or ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic class, you know, or sexual orientation. So, um, but going to your next Thank question. You. <laughs> I don't know. If wait, you wait, know. wait. You know, yeah. you know I have yeah. a response. <laughs> yeah, I will say, I, I have... I have to say in the book, when you talked about that um, and feeling like you were doubtful that maybe they should have hired someone mm-hmm. who was, you know, um, different or of, who maybe an African-American to do this work. I thought to myself, wow, that was maybe, was that the beginning of imposter? Was that a little bit of imposter syndrome setting in? Was that the doubt that I think so many of us professionals feel? I will go ahead and say, particularly women um, mm-hmm. in this space, doing this work, wondering, am I the right person to carry this torch? Am I the right person to do this work? Uh, so I just want to thank you again for sharing that, that personal lesson um, with us. That's a great point. Very good point. <laughs> you know, I think we, we all, we do tend to do that, particularly women, particularly women of color. Um, and I'm sure there was a lot of that going on. 
um, you know, for me as well. So appreciate you calling that out. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the piece is that, you know, this work is complex, it's very dynamic, and there's really no sort of checklist or playbook. And honestly, you know, as I was sharing before, we started this call, best practices are not enough because best practices are at a moment in time, right? And it's easy for these best practices to dissolve overnight without intentionality. So it really is a best practice in one given moment in time that is sort of, you know, a practice that we can learn from. But they're not fixed, they're not permanent, there's no cookbook. So these sort of five things that I found in doing my work time and time again with multiple organizations, that you know, I call them principles because they basically provide a through line for how to do diversity, equity, inclusion, and racial justice work. And each simple each sort of principle is a very simple statement. It has my experience as well as the anecdotes and experiences of many, many colleagues. They're simple, but they're disruptive. They don't provide standards and don't provide plug and play temp templates on what's worked in one country or in one organization. We have to have understand an organizational culture to know how to take those principles and then apply them in different organizational cultures. And, you know, the foundational mistake very often is, oh, this thing works over here, so it's going to work in this organization. Or, you know, works in this country, it's going to work in the, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It has to be applied with sensitivity to organizational cultures in single country, you know, in single countries, as well as across cultures and countries. But what these principles do is sort of empower leaders to develop their own solutions without mimicking any one um, person's or, you know, organization's experience. And, it, you know, it requires that you sort of draw on these multiple cultural frameworks to really make it work and make it relevant. So let me just quickly share the, the, the five principles. The first is what I call make it local. And, you know, this bit principle is really about the fact that global DI change has to be anchored in an understanding of the local context. It has to be rooted in the local particulars, informed by the history, the culture, the language, the laws, um, not only you know, in global organizations, but across organizational cultures in single country organization with organizations with regional nuances, for instance, in the US. And you know, one has to consider how identity is defined, how it's expressed, how it's perceived, the power dynamics and structures, the dominant and subordinate groups, and understanding the context is really the first step in finding the strategies that help to advance underrepresented groups. And it, honestly, Maisha, it doesn't mean accepting the status quo. So understanding the context is not about accepting the status quo. It's about using sort of being a catalyst for change and sometimes using an outside mm -hmm. sort of influence to be a catalyst for change, raising issues that people within a culture may not see, may not be able to raise because they're charged Mm -hmm. Or because of you know power dynamics. So, but what happens is that I think it works best when local change agents are empowered to find the right entry points, ensure relevance. And in the case of a Sen family prosperity, it's it's a great example because centering and empowering the families that are impacted is the only way to do this work. You know, you can't come in with sort of a cookie cutter approach. It's asking the families that are impacted about how they want, how we can support them. So that's really what this first principle is about. The second is what I call leaders change to lead change. 
And, you know, we just know, and you know, having worked in so many organizations, that senior leadership commitment is absolutely fundamental to ensuring that diversity, equity, and inclusion, racial justice is sustained. And when leaders embrace this DEI work with authentic purpose and passion, organizations go from performative action to really sustainable progress. But in order to do that, and there are many leaders on this call today, leaders really need to internalize the benefit to themselves and to the organization. And this sometimes takes a disruption in worldview, a change that happens very often with sort of painful work of introspection. Um, and the disruption of worldview can happen with data and facts, but very often takes place with experiences and stories because ultimately humans are emotional beings and uh, behavior and decisions are largely influenced by emotions. Um, you know, so often it's about the lived experiences of discrimination shared with the dominant group by those that have had these lived experiences. And I just think the leaders need to be mindful of the tone that it takes for people to share their lived experiences again and again sometimes, and we should really maximize each story and leaders need to take ownership of their own learning. So transformative leaders, which is critical, that's that second principle, right? Combine inclusive mindsets and behaviors with concrete actions and personal behavior demonstrates a conviction, but taking action really signals commitment. And it requires intentionality to focus on racial justice, on diversity, equity, and inclusion as they would with any other sort of business imperative, a mission-driven imperative. The third, very quickly, is what I call, and it's good business too. So without a compelling sort of change rationale, 70% of efforts fail, change efforts fail. And diversity, equity, and inclusion work cannot be siloed. It cannot be bolted on. It must be congruent with the organization's purpose and how business is done, as well as the you know, sort of geographic and regional trends. The third is go deep, wide, and inside out. And this is about the fact that you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion can't be really seen as you know, we're doing this as a series of activities. Organizations are really comprised of interconnected systems that work in concert with each other. And this work has to be infused within all of the processes and policies and structures. We have to take a systems approach, which is what I know you're doing at Aspen. It has to become part of how day-to-day -day business is done. It has to be embedded wide through governance uh, structures, scaling them deep through you know, change agents and allies and inside out by integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion, racial justice into the external and internal ecosystem. And then lastly, know what matters and count it is the fifth principle. And this is about simply, you know, about um, having the right metrics that spotlight problem areas and possible solutions and the, you know, instruments for change, but also holding teams accountable. So these are sort of the five principles that I have found critical in doing racial justice work in doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work because you know, they, they provide this sort of a container of framework to doing this work. So let me stop there. Thank you so much, Rainey. I, I, I would say I have lots of reactions. I'm gonna go on to the next question, but I just wanted to highlight okay. two things. One, because I know there's a lot of practitioners on the call, a lot of folks mm -hmm. who are either practitioners by title or by, you know, by what, you know, by name in their organizations or 
folks who are doing this work because it's important to them and by virtue of their role, they're just doing it because they know that someone needs to take this on. Um, And I would say two things, you know, I mean, everything you said makes so much sense. And that's one thing I love about the book as well. It's so relevant. Everything is so practical and relevant. And it's like, it's an aha moment. Like how do you, how you put it all together? Um, But two things you said, one was you were giving the example about, you know, involving the families um, as with the family prosperity initiative. Um, You ask the families, right. Ask those who are, you know, you, all too often we want to sit in a room and we want to create something and then kind of do it unto someone, right? We want to roll it out to someone who's going to be impacted, but it ne- it's never going to work unless you go to the source, unless you go to the folks on the ground who are going to be receiving that. Otherwise, it's DEI being done onto them, whether that's a junior staff person, whether that's someone who, you know, maybe not in a decision-making room, but they're kind of a recipient of the work or someone in the community. It has to be done in partnership. And I will, I just want to highlight that as a key, uh, a key thing I know works um, in, in helping some of these initiatives roll out that so many of us are working on. And then the second thing was just, you said leaders need to take ownership of their own learning. I won't say much about that, but I just wanted to say it out loud again, because I think it's something that sometimes we question how far we should push on that. Um, But I do believe it to be true that leaders need to take ownership for their own learning. Um, It is uh, the only way that the organization will continue to move and grow um, in a forward thinking manner. So thank you very much for those those, uh, principles uh, that you so carefully laid out for us. Uh, let's. I'm wondering if you can give us some examples as you as you think about people, you know, doing this work um, who are examples of, of success stories. Can you share some examples of leaders who have disrupted their worldview and you know it emerged as inclusive and transformative leaders in this space? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think there's some comments and questions along those lines as well, Maisha. So I think you know that's a very relevant question. Um, so let me give you just a couple of examples from, you know, my experience uh, in, in organizations. So I'll give you two sort of quick examples. One is, um, you know, a French leader. And um, so it, the French have a very different understanding of race than in the United States. And it comes from their historical context, World War II, the Holocaust. They actually don't gather data on race. Um, it's, you know, the word race was struck out of the constitution in 2018 in France. And, the, you know, there's a lot of sort of nuances to it. Um, but the idea was that, you know, the French is a universalistic society. And whether that's true or not, obviously, leaves much to be desired. But this particular leader, when, you know, when I talked about issues of race in the organization and addressing it, um, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, gender is what we can measure globally, race we cannot. So why are we focused on it? And I realized at that point in time that he needed to, you know, be on his own journey and, and, and basically expose himself to some aspects of race that maybe had not been part of his experience. So he actually attended a um, uh, all-Black meeting, the Employee Resource Group, and they had a meeting in, in Texas, he was one of the only white men in the room, certainly one of the maybe two French men in the room. Um, and he listened to the lived experiences of primarily African-American men. So they had simulated a barber shop and a beauty parlor. And there were these fireside chat, chats. It was beautifully done. I love so that. Can, yeah, isn't that wonderful? So um, that's where stories are shared, right? 
So he, he, he sat there and he listened to these stories and he came away after that and he said he sent the most heartfelt message in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, which I don't know if he would have done. But he came away, um, you know, basically having listened to these stories and they, it really was transformative for him. Um, and the other experience that was transformative, so it was the lived stories of the black men in the room that he listened to and really internalized and listened without judgment, but truly listened. And it was courageous of them to share these stories that were incredibly painful, obviously. And then the other piece was he was a minority in this room. He was one of the few white men, and I don't think he had been in that situation before. And he realized, you know, it was a new experience for him, very disruptive. So with that disruptive experience, he actually then went on his own journey of learning and, you know, sort of sent this message and really became a true champion. So that's sort of one example, one story. I'll share another, you know, quick one, actually two, if you don't mind around gender. Um, so this again, you know, this was an individual, a senior leader who was not convinced, you know, we had the you know, business case, there was sort of data to demonstrate the correlation between gender balanced teams and financial outcomes, as many organizations do, etc. Uh, but he wanted to sort of network with other CEOs, he wanted to kind of, you know, and so what I did was got him involved in networking with like-minded, you know, CEOs committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Through the process, he mentored a woman from a different company. This was a cross-company mentoring program that he became part of along with the CEOs. Um, he mentored this woman who was in a different organization. She got laid off. And when she got laid off, um, you know, she they had developed a trusting relationship and she shared with him some of her lived experiences of being the only woman in the C-suite, being marginalized, being discriminated against. And, you know, he came to me afterwards and he said, you know, I just don't believe that women have these experiences, even such senior women in this organization, in these organizations. You know, I want every single one of my leadership team to mentor a woman from a different part of the organization. So it's sort of that kind of disruption that has to happen because ultimately change happens at the intersection of systems. We have to have those systems changes and people, you know, and it's work that's ongoing. So we've got to also, you know, meet, you know, move leaders along and move their ecosystem of beliefs on this topic along as well. And they have to take responsibility for doing that themselves. But that's, you know, another example in this, you know, one of the leaders actually attended a session where, you know, it was a facilitated session where women, senior leaders in the group, it was a question that was asked, you know, have you ever been marginalized, discriminated against, um, you know, harassed? It was a string of, of words. And every one of those women, six of them in that room, very senior executives stood up in a nanosecond. And the jaw of some of the men just fell open. I mean, it was just you know, not part of their experience. So, I mean, it's this sort of piece that can cause disruption. You know, the, the class action lawsuit that I referenced, Maisha, the CEO at the time, you know, he had been a sponsor of the African-American Employee Resource Group and he attended a meeting with them. And I talk about this in the book and they asked him a bunch of questions about his commitment, his conviction. And he came away from that meeting just angry. You know, he said, you know, he, he was a you know, tough guy. He said, how, how can they ask me these questions? I'm the CEO. 
with reflection, with introspection, with experiences, he then went back into the meeting a couple of weeks later. I, I think it was yeah a month or so later. And as we started this conversation, he said to them, he said, you know, I have not lived your experiences. Can you share with me? I have not walked in your shoes. Can you share your experiences with me? It was that sort of opening that created this level of trust. He was an authentic guy. When he was, didn't believe in something, he was you know, angry, he would show it. When he did believe, he would show it. And it was with that sponsorship and support of the Black leaders in the organization that I think he was able to really turn the culture around or lead this culture transformation. And then he replicated it for his team. So, you know, I mean, those are some of the kinds of transformative experiences, but I think leaders, you know, have to take ownership for it and be open. So let me stop there. Thank you. It, it segues nicely to another question I had around how do leaders build their muscle for inclusion? And besides putting themselves in positions where they are experiencing that disruption, you know, that kind of jarring mm -hmm. uh, out, out of the box, like very different, you know, kind of um, experience in the moment, how do they really flex their muscle for inclusion and get better at it? I know we know that this is, it's difficult to not just, it's difficult to create inclusion. It's also difficult to measure it of all the letters in our DEIB, but how, how would you say uh, leaders can do that better? Yeah, I think in order to really move, as I've said, from, you know, sort of situationally driven efforts to those that are more permanent and more sustainable leaders really do have to build their inclusion muscle. And I think there are sort of a couple of things. One is that leaders need to reflect on their ecosystem of beliefs. We all have an ecosystem of beliefs. And particularly around this particular topic, it's very personal. It's very emotional. And they've got to do the difficult work of introspection to understand what their belief system is, acknowledge the unconscious biases that they have, make themselves vulnerable, and it's with that awareness that they can seek out experiences to open and shift their mindsets, you know, in order to internalize the benefit to themselves. And they can expand their worldview by, you know, mentoring, sponsoring people different from themselves, underrepresented groups, women, men of color, um, you know, LGBTQ employees, people with disabilities, mentor and sponsor those that are different from themselves. I think they can put themselves out of their comfort zone and seek experiences where they might be a minority. So whether it's attending, you know, participating, attending community events, uh, employee resource groups, you know, I think that being a minority, being in that situation can be very, very sort of just disruptive for people. And, and it sort of, you know, puts themselves out of the comfort zone that does make them think and, and become conscious of their own identity. I mean, I've been on both sides of this, right? I said I was a majority growing up in India. You know, I didn't think about my identity till I was that minority. So I think, you know, that's the second, the other thing. You know, they can listen to lived experiences, but I do think that that has to be, you know, done with caution just because of the toll it takes. Uh, conversations with their peers, you know, who see the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, Maisha, we talk about employees feeling a sense of belonging to an organization, but there is this other piece, which is a cohort of organizations that are sort of leaders in this space, 
And other organizations and leaders want to belong to that cohort of organizations. And that's a great sort of uh, incentive for leaders to, to open their minds and to talk to other leaders who get it and who can bring them along. Um, also the humility to learn, you know, by reading, by, you know, articles, having conversations, movies on this topic. And then one thing I found very effective is when leaders step up to sponsor employee resource groups and in, in organizations that they're not comfortable with. I think it can be a real, you know, accelerator because they learn a lot through the process um, and it can bring them along. So I think though, that's the second. And just quickly on the, the third is, you know, once they've done this, then, you know, sort of thought about things, introspective, sort out experiences. And I think they have to, to build their muscle, have to communicate the benefit of diversity, equity, and inclusion to the organization. So replicate these experiences for their team. Like I said, the CEO did, you know, after his conversation with the African-American leadership group, he had had his team have similar conversations. Um, they need to communicate the rationale, you know, the why to the organization. I think that's very important, whether it's aligned with the mission, whether it's part of the business, whatever it is, in order for us, you know, Ascend Family Prosperity to do our work better, we've got to address racial equity, both within um, in the organization as well as within the community. Um, the, you know, then I think they need to integrate their commitment into all of their communications and also make themselves vulnerable by sharing their own journey. And I think that can make a leader more authentic because not all of us, you know, have, have arrived there right from the start. So what is it that helped their journey? And I think that's important. And then the, the fourth thing I'd say is to hold teams accountable. They have to make their expectations critical, you know, critically clear crystal clear. They have to have targets for leaders. They have to measure the outcomes like they would with any other thing. They have to hold their teams accountable through the performance management process or whatever it is, whatever evaluation. How is my team member doing in racial justice in the work that they're doing, both with the team and with the community? And then, you know, they have to embed it in the internal and ex external ecosystems. So they examine their processes so that they have no bias, whether it's, you know, recruiting or development, embedded beyond the talent system into their strategy, into their mission, into their outreach and communications. And then lastly, you know, sort of engage external stakeholders. So just, I'm going to stop there. Was a lot. <laughs> Thank you. No, it was all great and very helpful. I hope people are taking some notes because this is great. Um, I am going. I need to shift to take questions, but I'm going to sneak in one last question, and we can maybe answer it very briefly. Although I'm sure it could warrant a longer answer. But you know, for those of you who are doing this work, this question is for you. You know, DEI work can be personally taxing, both emotionally, mentally, physically, especially for pr practitioners living at the intersection of race and gender. As a woman of color, Rohini, leading global equity and inclusion, how have you sustained yourself personally? Yeah, you know, this is, it's emotional work because it goes to the core of people's identity. Um, there's a lot of resistance that you're battling every single day. It takes creativity, it takes fortitude, it takes resilience, it takes grit. So for those that are doing this work, you know, it, it is, it's tiring work. Um, I mean, I, I would say the couple of things that I, you know, sort of frequently tell myself when I encounter resistance, don't, you know, I 
try not to take it personally, although it's not, it's hard not to because of my own identity. Um, I, you know, I think Dorothy Hyde, and I think you can see the picture of her behind me in my room, right? She wore these incredible hats. I noticed um, that. <laughs> she didn't have glasses on, you know, at 95. She didn't have a scrap of paper in her hand. And I remember very clearly she said of one talk that she gave was, leaders are dreamers with shovels in their hand. Leaders are dreamers with shovels in their hand. And I think you just have to hang on to your vision, okay? Despite the disheartening slippage, you have to also realize that you can't influence everyone. You know, there's some that you just cannot. But having done that, I said all of that, and you know, I have to also sort of the caveat to all this, Maisha, is that I'm a workaholic. So the work is about who I am and I don't tire easily. But I will say there are a couple of things that do replenish me. And it's important to have something that replenishes you, right? So for me, you know, doing yoga, getting out and walking, exercising is one way that I can just completely shift gear. Many people, you know, do this in the morning. I actually do it at the end of the day because I just need to kind of replenish myself. And then the second thing I'd say is, you know, communities of support. I mean, I cannot say enough about you know, seek out your community of support. It takes a village, whether it's family or friends or the DEI community that, you know, this racial justice community is incredibly, incredibly supportive. So seek out the community of support to help you, um, you know, that people that can, you know, share um, who, you know, how they've handled things and, and support you. So let me, let me stop there. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And it's great that you get a chance to do those things. I will not, um, I will not uh, commiserate on being a workaholic. Um, I'll just say, <laughs> I understand. Wink, wink. <laughs> All right. We're going to turn it to some of our questions that are coming. We're getting questions from many different sources. So we'll try to keep it organized here. Um, what gives you hope about the future, Rohini, the future of DEI? What gives you hope about the future and what opportunities are you most excited about right now when you think about uh, DEI? So, you know, and I think that progress has been slow up until this point, but I think this is a different time. This is a different moment in time. Progress has been slow. You know, organizations have been flailing to do this work. Um, oftentimes, you know, it's viewed as a series of incremental activities that are dispensable during crises. You know, this happened during COVID, budgets were slashed. There was a downsizing of DEI, and then you had, you know, the disparate impact of the pandemic on women and marginalized communities. You had systemic racism that was magnified by the murder of George Floyd that accelerated the need for organizations to double down and focus on DEI. So organizations, you know, have been trying to figure things out, and many have been giving money for racial justice courses, $200, $200 billion in the U.S. alone, um, appointing positions, but you know, obviously that's not enough, okay? But I'm hopeful, I'm really hopeful now because I think Anne mentioned this and I'm going to just echo what she said, that this is a time for transformation, not reckoning. And we're, it's a different time, we're different now. And I do think that organizations are moving to that sort of, you know, disrupting the status quo and doing it in a way that this, this disruption of the status quo becomes a normalized part of the conversation in organizations, it's happening. 
you know, at the individual level, we're adding social class. We're, you know, all intersectional beings. We have intersectional identities. We're adding social class to the DEI discourse. And that's precisely what Ascend is doing through fam the family prosperity efforts, right? At the organization level, more and more organizations and leaders are audaciously eliminating harmful practices that you know, favor some people and they're disrupting the systems that have supported their success. It's, you know, it's these systems that are sort of tenacious because sometimes leaders don't recognize it, but more and more leaders are doing it. Organizations are taking unequivocal stands on injustice in their communities, you know, such as voting rights. So you know, I think this is work that's, you know, each of us has to do this work. We have to be aware of our own awareness. Can I just, Maisha, in terms of capturing what gives me hope, can I just read a couple of lines that I just- Of course. This yes. is Amanda Gorman, who reflected on the delivery of her inaugural poem a year ago, okay? To me, this is what captures the hope. I, you know, she says it far more eloquently than I can, but I think this is you know, fitting to share this. This past year for many has felt like a return to the same old gloom. Our nation is still haunted by disease, inequality and environmental crises. But through our fears, but sorry, but though our fears may be the same, we are not. If nothing else, this much be known, even as we've grieved, we've grown. Even fatigued, we found that this hill we climb is one we must mount together. We are battered, but bolder, worn, but wiser. I'm not telling you to be tired or afraid. If anything, the fact that we are weary means we are by definition changed. We are brave enough to listen and learn from our fear. This time will be different because this time we'll be different. We already are. So I think this time we are definitely different. Um, and I, I'm very hopeful that this is a time for transformation and individuals and organizations are leading the way. So. Thank you so much for that, Rohini. Unfortunately, we, our time is just getting away from us, but I thought that was so appropriate. Thank you for sharing that. And if nothing else, uh, words, uh, words from Amanda Gorman and uh, young people like her definitely give me hope. I'm going to ask um, if you have a, a call to action for us at all, and then I'm going to transition uh, back. Uh, but is there just a short call to action that you want to give to uh, the folks on the call? Yeah, I mean, my call to action is basically, you know, this transformation happens at the intersection of people and processes. It's, it's work that's ongoing. It must be a personal and professional journey for each of us. And we each have to examine our own self-awareness, our inclusive behaviors and actions, and use ourselves as instruments of change. We can, we can do it. You know, Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of committed, passionate citizens can change the world. Indeed, it That's is right. the only thing that ever has. And this is that group. We can do it. Dr. Rohini Anand has spent many years leading diversity efforts at the food company Sadesco. She now advises leaders around the world on implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies. She is also an advisor to Ascend at the Aspen Institute's Family Prosperity Innovation Community. Ascend is a catalyst and convener for systems, policy, and social impact leaders working to create a society where every family passes a legacy of prosperity and well-being from one generation to the next.
Over the course of her career, Maisha Renee Forbes has helped many public and private organizations improve the experiences of their employees. She is Vice President of People and Culture at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by Ascend and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.